what is the, the chief end of man? And, and by that, they mean the chief end of, of humanity, of humankind. And, and the answer is, is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, I think we're going to see this all over the text that we're looking at this morning. But one of the questions that we really all have to ask ourselves is when we think about our lives, the decisions that we make, the things that we give ourselves to, those things that we love most, that drive the decisions that we make from Monday to Sunday, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that God created us for? Are, are we here as a being created by God for his glory? Or there's another option, that is that we are not created and that we are actually here for our own glory. Are we going to seek joy in God in the ways that God has prescribed? Or are we going to seek joy apart from God? And those two ways to live are radically different. They, they come with not only implications for the last day that we read about when Jesus Christ, the great judge, comes back. But what we find this morning in the text that we're going to be looking at is that there are actually daily contemporary consequences whereby the wrath of God is being experienced by us in real time. And here's my, here's my guess. For some of you, it's going to surprise you what the wrath of God actually looks like in real time. Now we're, if you didn't know, in our Roman series where we've been going through the book of Romans, and what we find is in verse 17, a kind of snapshot of what this letter is going to be about, which is unfolding Paul's gospel, which centers on the righteousness of God. And there he is speaking of a kind of saving righteousness of God that is being revealed in the gospel right now and will be revealed on the last day. But he says, catch this in verse 18 that, we're, that we looked at last week, that there's also a sense in which though the power of God is clear in the gospel and being revealed right now, there is also a wrath of God that is coming down from heaven that is being revealed in the unrighteousness of men. Well, we're going to find in our verses this morning, as we look at verses 24 to 26, the way that that wrath that is being revealed against those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and are living in unrighteousness, uh, he is going to show us what that looks like. And, and you'll notice that he hints at it in this repetitive phrase that we find in verse 24, 26, and 28. He says, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. And that gives us a picture of what God's wrath looks like in real time. Now, if you take notes, here's our big idea. You can write this down. It's this, God reveals his just wrath by giving us what we want. God reveals his just wrath by giving us what we want. We're going to unpack that as we move along. Uh, we see this first in this reality in verses 24 to 27. God gives humanity up to sin as a consequence to not worshiping God. God gives up humanity to sin as a consequence of not worshiping God as God. Now you'll notice if you look at verse 24, it begins with that therefore. And that word tells us that he is setting this statement in the context of what he has just said. And that context is this reality where Paul has been in verses 18 to 23 highlighting the tragic exchange of idolatry. See, humanity gives up worshiping the immortal God for creeping things 
that pass away. Those creatures created by God that die and perish. That, that is the exchange. A thing that is naturally going to death for a thing and a being that does not die who is immortal and eternal. See, nature should tell us something is wrong with humans worshiping golden cows. I think that's fairly obvious to say out loud. There's something in us that if you see another person coming before a golden bull or cow and bowing down as you hear in the background, you're saying, I don't think this is the way this is supposed to be, right? I mean, humans seem to be a little bit more complex and innovative than bulls. That is common sense. And I, I think that's actually the idea that Paul sees as he's talking about idolatry. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure some of you have gotten much more creative in your idolatry. You, you don't worship actual golden idols. You actually worship things like Bitcoin or investments or good things like your children who are also created in the image of God but not meant to be God. See, I think that Paul, what he wants us to see is there is something very natural about the way that God has revealed himself and in his visible attributes in creation that we are not seeing the absurdity of. Verses 24 to 25 explain the consequences and penalty of not worshiping God as God. Notice first, he says in verse 21, I mean 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Now, a couple things here. Uh, first, notice that God gave them up in verse, in, in verse 24. He, he gave them up. This is the first of three giving ups. Now, this has been taken, this giving up, in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, one is a very passive activity of God, and the other is a very active activity of God. In what way did God give them up? Well, he is, of course, in context, speaking of a Gentile world, those far from God, he says that God gave them up. And uh, the way that it has been passively described is through this illustration uh, by a, a commentator who, who actually describes the giving up in his way. It's a passive way, such that God just ceased to hold the boat, as it were, and allowed it to be dragged by the current of the river into the wrath of God. In other words, it, your life, it's though God had a hold of it, and you were, they were pursuing sin, and at some point, God's activity was simply just letting go. And it was a current that drugged them into greater sin. Now, here God merely kind of lets the current of their own sins carry them on. Now, this seems to come, I believe, from a more deistic kind of vision of God. The kind of idea where God has set up the world just to act and respond to the way that you act and respond in life sort of automatically. But the point of this section and the highlight through that repetition of God gave them up is really focusing on the wrath of God being revealed, I think, actively from heaven in the present affairs of humanity. It is being revealed. Not it will be revealed, but it is being revealed right now. See, Paul repeatedly reminds us that God responds to the idolatry of the Gentiles 
by God actively giving them up to the necessary consequences of their sins, what he calls the lust of their hearts. Now, we can see, I think, at least a couple of implications here. I mean, for one, even a non-Christian, I believe Paul would say, can experience God's restraining grace. Do you see it? He's speaking about Gentiles, and he's saying there was a time where they were not given up. They were not fully what they could be. They were in their lust, but they weren't really as deep as they could have been in what they were wanting and longing for and doing. So there was a kind of restraining grace that even was at play before he gave them over. God showed patience with idolaters. He shows patience even with those who are rebels and enemies of his. He restrained them from the sin they wanted so badly before giving them up. Do you you see the, the sort of small, faint window we get into the character of God here? God's goodness is even displayed to absolute rebels against him. And this morning, maybe you need to be reminded as you were thinking to yourself, man, I'm, I feel so much this morning. Like, you know, God, it's his fault that I'm not like living a holy life like I should be. If he was giving me more help here, then maybe I'd be in a better place. And the reality here, Paul says is, no, if God were to let go of you, you have no idea how bad it would be. Second, I think the other implication we see here in, in these first, this first phrase is that we shouldn't take God's restraining grace for granted. Now, this has implications for Christians and non-Christians alike. I know that there is a sense in which we can feel very self-sufficient in all kinds of things in, in the way that we pursue our careers and the way that we run our families. We can feel like we've got it under control ourselves and we feel like we can manage our sins like we can dabble in sin. You can dabble in sin on the internet just a little bit or with your girlfriend. And, and whatever it is that you long for, there's a, a small way maybe even in your own heart where you can think sinfully about things and you've got sin under your control on a leash in, in your mind. And all of us are more desperately needy for God's strength to fight sin than we know. It's not our strength or our intellect that ultimately protects us from sin. It's God's strength, his wisdom, his power that enables us at all to resist the devil. We need so much of God. God restrains us. We don't restrain sin. See, outside of Christ, you are, you are really, if we understand Paul's picture, dangling over a great chasm by a thread of God's grace, that if he were to remove it, you would be lost forever in an unsatiable appetite for sin if God were to give you up. That's today, and then there's a last day that's coming. But notice here what Paul sees giving them up to. It is their desires for sexual sin as a consequence of misdirected worship. Did you see that? I'm giving you over to what you want because you first did not worship me as you should. 
See, they want what they want more than they want God. This comes into full force in verses 24b to 25, where he shows that not honoring God leads to dishonoring their bodies. Now, he's already shown this uh, in, in verses 18 to 23, but he reiterates it. He says, God, again, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, did you catch what Paul says he gave them up to? This is interesting yet again. He, he gave them up to what their hearts wanted. Not honoring God led to lust welling up in the heart, wanting things that they should not. Just It, it began to dam up in their souls, which once God gave them over, it resulted in the, the dishonoring of their bodies. Now, Paul's not, I don't think in this text, standing back and, and telling this church of Gentiles and Jews that, you know what? We are an evolved people. Love is love. You do you. If it makes you happy, it just can't be that bad. No, Paul says he gives them over to impurity. Now, this word for impurity is a word that uh, really talks about something that's unclean and can make other people unclean, like a dead body. It's a word for, for vile or dirty. And here, he highlights the nature of the impurity. He says, the dis, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, this, of course, speaks of sexual sin, which Paul, he's going to talk about more in just a moment. But for now, notice the tragic exchange. In verse 21, humanity failed to honor God as God. But here, they are dishonoring their own physical bodies among themselves. Now, here's the unintended consequence of robbing God of his glory. Please hear me this morning. You're thinking to yourself, I'm going to disobey God. I'm not going to seek glory the way that he has created me to or told me to in his word. Like, I want glory for myself. Here's the, the great exchange that you are making. You are robbing yourself of your own glory. God, God never loses an inkling, a speck of glory. He is altogether glorious, infinite, eternal, immortal. He never passes away. He never diminishes. He is altogether good and glorious all the time, and nothing will ever change that. There is not a time when God has not been altogether glorious. And when you seek glory apart from God, when we do that, we are making a horrible, tragic exchange. We are trading a grain of temporal pleasure for the eternal, immense ocean of God's eternal glory that he hopes to demonstrate and display in and through us. Not a good trade. Not a good trade. It reminds me of the time that I showed up to a baseball card show where I thought I was going to get some cool cards, and I traded away a Cal Ripken Jr. card for pennies on the dollar, and I got robbed. And I make that trade every day whenever I give up my own pursuit of God's glory apart from the ways that he has told me to pursue it. We make bad trades. See, Paul reiterates that not serving God led them to serve their sinful desires in verse 25. He says this, it is because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. See, Paul sees God giving them up to their sin as a consequence 
Are you seeing this? I handed them, God handed them over to the sins that they lusted and longed for as a consequence and a penalty for worshiping creatures rather than their creator. That's why Paul interrupts this section focused on a failure to worship God with this striking doxology. I mean, think about this. He's, he's talking about the lust and, and the sinful desire and the ways that they're just, they've not worshiped God right. And in the middle, he just takes a break to praise God, who has blessed the creator forevermore. Why does he do that? Well, I believe it's because he wants to show and demonstrate that God created humans to uniquely glorify him and enjoy him forever. God created us to rule over the cows, not to bow before them. And don't miss this. First, when we fail to glorify God, we are the real losers. We're the losers. God owns every animal and the cattle on a thousand hills, according to Psalm 50. He does not need our sacrifices or our bulls to be worshipped through. No, God's glory is not diminished when we fail to glorify him. Ours is. Second, theology and doxology are going to, exe- are going to educate our sexuality. D- did you catch that? Paul does not say that sexuality is disconnected from who you worship. He, he doesn't say that this is something that is sort of outside of the boundaries of God's sovereignty or his purposes for humanity. He says, no, you need to understand that who you worship will shape the way that you understand and value and practice sexual ethics. And it shouldn't be the other way around, that we start to begin with our own sexual desires and then work our way back up to God and who we think he is. Paul says that's an upside down kind of theology. It's not natural. Now understand verses 26 to 27 to explain more specifically for what reason and how God handed them over to the dishonoring of their bodies in 24. Remember verse 24, they they are dishonoring their bodies. Well, here I think that he's actually explaining specifically what he's talking about. He has one example that he uses here. And this, this is our second point, that God gave them up to unnatural homosexual relations in verses 26 to 27. Now, Paul explains this there. If you look with me in verses 26 to 27 again, I'm going to read those for us. Here's what Paul says. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now you'll notice that Paul, again, he uses this word dishonorable in verse 24 and here in 26. Dishonorable is a word that really means the opposite of glory. So they they literally are doing the opposite of what God has created them to do, which is to image God's glory. The Gentiles do a lot of exchanging in these verses. Uh, You'll notice that Throughout, there has been an exchange that has been being made. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols in verse 23. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie in verse 25. And here we find that women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise made the exchange, giving up natural relations with women. 
But then, did you catch that at the end in 27, Paul clarifies three specific ways that men did what was not natural. He says, they gave up natural relations with women, they burned with desire for other men, and they committed shameless acts with men. Now, I don't want to bury the lead here. We're going to spend some time here. I, I don't think that Paul is picking out homosexuality as the worst sin. I also don't think that he's saying that homosexuality is not a significant sin. There are sins that are worse than homosexuality. In other words, I, I don't think that we find that the consequence for every single sin is exactly the same. We, we see that even in, in nature, in reality. Some, some sins carry greater consequences, greater judgments. So let me just make five important observations in verses 26 to 27 so that hopefully we can understand what Paul is trying to communicate about this very sensitive topic. First, I believe that Paul is likely driving us back to God creating male and female in his image in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Now, here's why I say that. There is a common word that Paul uses for male and female, not the words that he uses here in Romans. He actually is using the same words for male and female that are used in the Greek version of the Old Testament of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I believe that what he's doing is, is he's driving their attention back to God's created order in Genesis 1. And he's saying, I, I understand that what's happening here, the right way, the, the biblical way, the way that God created actually in creation, man and female to, to live life together sexually, comes from Genesis 1 when God created us. There is a right and a wrong way. In fact, New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner explains it this way. He says that these words, they are emphasizing the sexual distinctiveness of male and female, suggesting that sexual relations with the same sex violate the distinctions that God intended in the creation of man and woman. Now, there's another thing that I think we see here that's important, and that's that Paul uses second nature here. He uses this word nature. He repeats it three times to describe biological realities. I think this is important. See, Paul refers to nature three times in this text, highlighting that what is being done in homosexuality is contrary to nature. That's his point. Now, how we understand nature can shape the way that we interpret this text. So our culture teaches that people have a, a gender and a sex, and that they may be different. Your gender might not be your sex. See, sex is biological. It's physically how you were made. Whereas gender, uh, our culture says, is something that is psychological, something that you sort of decide and invent for yourself. And sex does not determine gender. Your, your physicality does not, it does not in any way shape who you are as a gendered being. Now that's why we get articles like one I was shown this week, can men get pregnant? If you were to show the article, can men get pregnant to my grandfather, he would think you were, you were something was wrong with you and you need to be locked up or that it didn't mean what you thought it meant or that you misspoke. 
See, Paul would say that doesn't make sense. That's not natural. Why? Well, paraphrasing Robert Gagnon from the Bible and homosexual practice, here he says, nature does not mean out of step with what is normally done. That's not what nature means. Like, you're just like, that's not natural. That's not what everybody does. That's not what he's talking about. But instead, nature appeals to the material shape of the created order. Like, this is not the way that God created it. Just look at it physically. It doesn't work that way. Now, I want to be really careful here. But Paul, I believe, is saying that human anatomy tells us homosexuality clearly does not fit in the way that it is supposed to, as it does with a man and woman. Now, that obviously doesn't lead to procreation either, but I think that he has more general, obvious, physical creation kind of observations that are going on here. Now, Paul points to creation in Genesis 1 to highlight that God created a gendered humanity. Remember, in the beginning, God created man in his image and after his likeness. Male and female, he created them. And I think this is the reason that Paul highlights the, the specific sin of homosexuality. It is not because it is the worst sin that he can think of. This is a serious sin. There are worse sins. But this is an obvious sin that is not working in the way that God created it to work. And I think he chooses homosexuality here because it was so visibly incongruent with the nature in the same way that a human bowing before a golden bull looks ridiculous. Well, this is different, a different kind of view from someone like Matthew Vines, who has argued that because this text speaks of lust and passionate desire, which is mentioned in verse 24, it does not condemn someone who by nature is homosexual, who is born with that desire. Do you see that? Now he is defining sexuality based on your own sense of yourself rather than a way that God has made you. And he says that if you love someone of same sex for life, God's not excluding that here. See, for him, Paul's not condemning those born this way. Paul would not have understood this this way in the way that Matthew Vines does, though. He is saying, no, it is a physical reality. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's not the way God made it. Because third, did you catch that passionate desire doesn't make homosexuality okay? Like, he's very clear about this. Now, there, there, there's a song that was really popular some years ago by Lady Gaga, born this way. And it sings about, I believe, the philosophy of our age. She says, just love yourself and you are set. No matter gay, straight, lesbian, transgender, you're on the right track, baby. I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. Now, Paul would say that not all desires are good. D does that make sense? Not all desires are, are equal. There are some things that you can want that are wrong. Not all wants are of equal value. And all of us know that we all have some limitation, some place where we would say, at least not that. Question is, where do you draw the line and how, how do you draw the line? Do you decide for yourself or in a community, or do you believe that God has created the standards by which you determine whether a thought or a desire is right or wrong? 
Paul would say, I look to my creator for definitions of what's right and wrong. See, God says in his creation, there is only one way to the Father, John 14, 6, and that is through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. There's not another way, another path. It's only through him and that truth. That's a truth that judges, in a sense, all other truths. And that way is narrow. Not many find it. Our desire should not lead us to self-love, but to really self-awareness of our neediness. As we come to, to, to look at the scriptures and what they say about us and creation and where we are and what we love and what we want, that word should actually define for us what is right and wrong and good and holy and just and those things which deserve God's judgment and wrath. Fourth, Paul appeals to Genesis 1, not Leviticus. I think this is interesting. Leviticus, he could have quoted Leviticus, and he probably would if he was speaking to the Jews, because Leviticus is very clear in speaking out against homosexuality. In fact, if you look historically at different nations, different nations all had something to say against homosexuality, at least in some form, not in every form. But as you come to the reality of God's people in the Bible, they have very clear language about the nature of homosexuality. In Leviticus 18.22, it says, And with male you shall not lie as with a woman. In Leviticus 20.13, Leviticus 20, he, he amps it up and he says, And should anyone lie with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. So think about this. Paul, coming from a Jewish background, speaking in a context where Jewish Christians have read other Jews, knowing that they understand that homosexuality is an abomination. Here, Paul doesn't just jump in and point to Leviticus. No, he points back to Genesis. And he says, Genesis gives us the support for why this is wrong. It's not the way that God made male and female or the purposes he created for them to procreate and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. See, the Old Testament and Jews of Paul's day would have understood homosexuality as even more shameful than the surrounding nations did. And I don't, I don't sense here that Paul is actually changing and saying, I've evolved, and I'm seeing this as less of a kind of sin against God. Fifth, this speaks of homosexuality broadly. Now, some claim Paul speaks of a specific kind of homosexuality, like that between a, a man and a child, or uh, someone who is not by nature, like their definition, uh, homosexual, somebody that's going against the way that God created them, or, or something of that nature. But notice that he specifies women and men just like Leviticus does. He says it's, it's men and women who are practicing these things. Very generally, it's broadly, he's saying this is just not the way that God intended. But notice that he specifies women and men just as they do in the Old Testament. Now, here's why this is so important. Notice that Paul ends in verse 27 saying, they are receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now that might be saying more than, than what we can say here today. But you'll remember that this section began with Paul saying, there is a present manifestation of God's wrath for those who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Now the word for penalty here, it's an interesting word. It carries this idea of receiving a recompense based on what they deserve. It's a kind of payback. Now, their error here is sexual immorality, and specifically homosexuality. So payback 
or God's wrath can be seen in the present, in present day, and God giving them over to dishonor their bodies. See, God, he gives them over towards their lust for sin. Now, don't miss this. God's just wrath is seen in giving people the sin they hunger after. That's the way that Paul says the wrath of God is revealed right now from heaven. He has released them to the things they want. The insatiable appetites for sin are met with dissatisfying sin in an eternal feedback loop of despair. They trust these other things to bring them the joy and the glory they were made for. And they show up empty again and again. And their appetites, they are hungrier and hungrier for the glory of God and some kind of happiness. And all they find is that they are more and more sorrowful and further and further from God. And at some point, the unthinkable happens. God gives them over to all the things that they've been running after. It is the worst thing you can imagine except the ultimate future that awaits. We need to think carefully about how to, I think, apply this in our culture as, as Christians. You know, we are living in a, a different day than Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, that Baptist pastor of the 1800s, had his own challenges. We have our unique challenges. For one, as we think about this, we, we don't need to, and I'm going to put this hopefully in a way that's memorable, but we don't need to either stutter or I stuttered when I stuttered. I said stutter. Like, see? We don't need to stutter or spittle when we talk about the nature of the way that God speaks of homosexuality as a sin. We, we shouldn't do that as we express that homosexuality is a sin in, in such a way that even a natural man ought to acknowledge. We, we shouldn't stutter and we shouldn't spittle. Here, here's what I mean by that. We shouldn't stutter in the sense that I think there's some times where we read what God's Word says, and, and then we see our, our culture, and we become very timid about saying what is true. And I'm not saying there doesn't need to be wisdom. But when we begin to proclaim things that are just simply true from the Scriptures, we act almost as though we are embarrassed, more embarrassed about God before men than we are before men about God. Like, we, we ought to, to be bold for saying what is true about who he is and how God has created them. And if we really believe what God has said about the nature of sexuality and human flourishing, then what we have to say is something that is for their best. We, we want what's better for them. If we buy their lie, then we, we lose everything. If they hear our truth, they gain everything. Like, we ought to speak of it in that way. But we also need to make sure that we don't spittle as we do it. In other words... We should not be angry about the truth. The truth is glorious. It's hard to talk about joy when you're angry all the time. It's hard to say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever if you're just mad at everybody all the time. But if you really have come to know the altogether glorious God, the one who is the source of all joy, whose all joy sits at his right hand, it's only available in him, then that should be something that you are happy to share with others in wise ways, in the right context, 
and without spittle. Does that make sense? Not only that, second, another way that we should apply this, not only should we not be ashamed of God, second, the gospel of God is powerful enough to save your gay neighbor, to save your neighbor that is addicted to pornography, to save your neighbor who has no desire for the true God but worships Allah. The gospel is powerful enough to save anyone. That should bore itself deep within our soul. I've shared the story before of Rosaria Butterfield. This is the woman who you would think is the poster child of unreachable for the gospel. She is a, a professor of feminist studies at Syracuse and a practicing lesbian of a decade. And in her book, she talks about the way that she came to faith and the way that she came to faith. You know the way it was? It wasn't by a dream. It wasn't because she saw a miracle. It was because a pastor and his wife invited her into their home where they started to read the Bible with her. And it was actually Romans 1, these very verses that we are reading today that you might be think are off-putting to those who are far from God that actually left her feeling like she was without escape. She, she came to understand that she was living for the glory of men rather than the glory of God, and she longed to know Jesus. And it was through these verses that she was rescued. And in that book, she confesses, at the end of the day, I realized that what was really driving me wasn't even my desires sexually, but my pride. The fact that at the end of the day, I did not want God telling me what was right and wrong. I wanted to tell him what was right and wrong. See, countless, countless dinners and conversion, uh, conversations and Bible studies with the pastor and his wife discussing the gospel and the scriptures changed everything for her. Trust the gospel and it can save, it can save your gay neighbor. Third, if you do struggle with same-sex desires, I, I don't take this text to say that same-sex attraction indicates that a person has turned away from God more than others. Now, there might be a way in which you run headlong off into that, and, and there's a releasing that means you're not a good place. But it doesn't mean that you're in a worse spot. In fact, Sam Albury, a, a pastor who struggles with same-sex attraction, uh, is also chosen to be celibate, and he serves as a pastor and a writer and an apologist. He, he wrote the book, anti, Is God Anti-Gay? I told you about at the beginning of the service. And he says in that book, the presence of same-sex desire in some of us is not an indication that an individual has turned from God more than others, right? We all have sin desires that we fight, or that they have been given over to God or by God to further sin more than others. But the presence of homosexual feelings in me, he says, reminds me that my desires are not right because the world is not right. That's what, that's what those desires should turn you towards. This is not the way God created in Genesis 1. This is not who I have been created to be in Christ. But notice third, finally, God gave up all of humanity's sinful thoughts, desires, words, and actions in 28 to 32. See, Paul ends this section with a, a vice list that covers all of the bad stuff that God gave the Gentiles over to since they failed to honor God. Now just listen to this list. It really helps you to see really the, the, the height and the depth and the breadth of the sin that they've been given over to in the way that it is taken hold. He says this, verse 28. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, we don't need to define each word here. I'm sure that would be encouraging for you. It would not be encouraging for me. But I think you get the point. God's given them over to the sin they long for. They invent sin, hate God, hurt others, and don't feel bad about it. In fact, verse 32 summarizes the dramatic end, saying, though they know God's righteous decree and those that practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, these, these Gentiles do not have God's law, but they do have God's righteous decree. That tells me and them that they deserve death for their sins. Now, this seems to speak again. I think he's talking about a kind of natural law at play in Genesis 1 that all people are held accountable to. They are to glorify God who created them. And not to do so is sin, worthy of God's wrath, and in danger of being handed over. But what's even worse is, these folks condone or give approval to the practice of these sins. I mean, this is the kind of thing where I think there's one sense in which if you are caught up in sin and you're hiding it, like there's still kind of a shame, hopefully, that's kind of holding you back. But once you are out in the open and you're actually advocating for sin and you have communal impact of your sin, things have gotten exponentially worse. See, they have fully and knowingly taken sin's side against God rather than God's side against sin. And once privatized and shameful sins become celebrated rights in a community, it's a signal of the degree of sin has hit that is hard to come back from. So, so what some think of liberation, God calls enslavement worthy of his just wrath. Well, let me close with just a few implications. One is that you might feel a sense of despair over the, the current state of, of churches more likely that the nation is though God has perhaps given up on our nation for a good reason. On the other hand, you might think things that are moving in a good direction and God is delivering us from those oppressive remnants of straitjacket religion. But don't miss this. I think Robert Mounts gets it right in his commentary where he says moral degradation is a consequence of God's wrath, not the reason for it. Do you hear me? It's not like, oh no, like things are so bad, God's about to do something. No, it's, oh no, things are so bad, God is doing something. Think about that for a second. God's wrath is not merely for our moral degradation. Our moral degradation is a present manifestation of God's judgment on us. According to God, bondage is being given over to our desires. And I, I take that to mean that God is present in the absurdity of this moment in history. 
Now, for those of our judges, uh, for those of us who are judges, who are speech writers, lobbyists, who are working in politics, uh, I know that it's easy to, to listen to that, hear that, and think to yourself, oh my goodness, like, this is, this is such a hot mess, I'm stepping away. There's no purpose for me in life and the vocation I think God's called me to. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to work that out with God, but hear this. I believe that you should seek to do justice according to God's will and the ways that God empowers you to do. Sometimes God has pulled back cultures to repent of major egregious sins like slavery in England through the efforts of Christians like William Wilberforce. God did a magnificent work through him and it continued on for many generations after his life. And not only that, if you're in government and you're, you're working for good and you feel lost and you feel crazy, hear me, you might be in a really good place. If you feel nuts, it might be because you see things rightly as God sees them. It's crazy. And God's wisdom looks foolish to a people that have been given over to sin. You know, that seeing of the craziness of reality is a grace of God. And don't forget to celebrate clean eyes and a clear heart through the gospel to see what's happening. Finally, I think this text, if it left you feeling a little overwhelmed like it does me, I mean, imagine preaching this stuff. I think it should leave us feeling overwhelmed by the pervasiveness of sin all around us. It's overwhelming. Now, we don't get to the, the good news right here in this text just yet. But this is really the context that sets the stage for our need of the salvation of God. Do, do you see it? We're, we're not ready for the, the goodness and the greatness and the gloriousness of the news that has come to us in the gospel if we don't first understand the pervasiveness and fearfulness of the mess that we are in. See, this highlights both our desperation and God's power. The more desperate we are, the more, de the more needy that we seem, the more unable that we appear to be able to help ourselves, the more that we see the power of God lifted up in all of its spectacular glory. See, if humanity has been living in a cycle of moral degradation, even since Adam fell, you, you might rightly ask yourself, what hope is there? Well, Romans 2.5 tells us, this present wrath only prepares us, guess what, the problem gets worse, for the greater eschatological wrath that's coming. And what is humanity even supposed to look like even more after so much corruption? Well, God uniquely created humanity to reflect his glory, but he sent a son who perfectly images and glorifies God in every single way, who shows us what true humanity is to look like, and that's Jesus of whom Hebrews 1 says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, later in Romans 8, 29, we see another use 
the only other use of the word images in this book. The first is to the idolatry that we find in Romans 1 in this text. And the second time we find in Romans 8, 29, this word image used when he says that Christians have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Created to image Jesus. God is doing it in his people. And God is bringing that reality about from one degree of glory to the next by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Christian, you can be encouraged that God is doing amazing things in and through you because of and out of the outworking of the power of the gospel. God has not, God will not give you up. And again, be reminded that God can save anybody. Uh, in closing, um, you know, God gives people over so they can see their desperate need of him so often. So often God, when he hands people over, they taste the fullness of sin and they just want out. And that's a grace of God too. Uh, I, I wanted to share with you a testimony of a brother who uh, passed over the COVID season. Uh, a good brother who, um, sweet, godly, older man, uh, came to my office one day and began to share his testimony. We were going to videotape it, but he died during COVID. We didn't get to do that, but an amazing story. So he began to tell me about the way that uh, he, uh, all of his life, um, had been involved uh, for decades uh, living in San Francisco, super successful and living in an intensely uh, sinful lifestyle, uh, homosexual uh, in that place all of his days until uh, he, came to, he came to Arizona and he was retired and he began to lose his sight. And as he began to lose his sight, he decided that he would start going to church because somebody invited him to. And as he began to listen, he began to see Jesus in his word, began to see his need of him, began to feel convicted of his sin. And he one day said to this pastor that led him to Christ, a good friend of mine, this, this blindness that God gave me physically was so that I could see God spiritually. And I would make that exchange any day from now and forevermore. Now here's the beauty of his testimony. When he came to Christ, his constant concern was, I just don't know if God can forgive somebody that was so deeply embedded in sin like me. And the thing I would tell him day after day is, brother, do you know how many decades you lived without seeing that that is not the way that God made you? And what a grace it is that God has given you eyes to see how he made you, what he made you for, his glory, not your own. And he has given you a future and a hope in Christ. And I want you to know if you're here and, and you're far from God and you think there's no way, that there's a way to God, like God has made a way for you in Jesus. Put your faith in him today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today praising you that you are a good creator, God, that you made us in your image, that you made us to glorify you, to enjoy you forever. Father, I pray this morning for those who might struggle with desires, might, might question who they are, Lord, I pray that they would look not to their sexuality, but to your son for their identity. And Lord, for the rest of us, we pray that we would uh, be those who worship Christ joyfully, who speak truthfully about the nature of what your word says with joy. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see many people come to faith in Jesus, to be saved from a world that is passing away, that is under your wrath, to a son whom at right hand is eternal joy forevermore. It's in your name we do pray.